Hello, you mere mortals. Nicholas Brinborg is a molecular biologist and the author of Jellyfish Age Backwards. Nicholas, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and uh, thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. So what was your goal with this book? Well, the, there were several goals, uh, actually, but the main goal was to... Um, to spread some of this uh, really nice knowledge that we have about how to live a long life that is right now pretty hidden in obscure journals, you know, behind academic jargon, uh, to make it more available to, to normal people. Uh, and then, of course, also when you write a book, uh, it's also the aim to uh, entertain, uh, give people a great experience. Considering that the subject here is aging, why do we age, Nicholas? Well, we actually don't know that we don't have the full picture yet of like just why we age. Uh, there's two camps, basically one saying that it's because our machinery to uh, repair ourselves tend to fail with age, uh, with time. And then the other one is that it's some kind of program, just like we have a developmental program that builds us up from a little baby to an adult. Then some people believe we have a program that then kind of tears us, uh, tears us down again. So the uh, title creature in this book, of course, is the jellyfish and the Turritopsis jellyfish actually ages backwards when confronted with stress. How does this work? Yes. So this uh, is important to note that it's not like all jellyfish that age backwards. It's a particular kind, as you say, called Turritopsis, which is just like a tiny jellyfish, maybe the size of a fingernail. Uh, and it can go from its adult stage back to its polyp stage when you, for instance, uh, change the temperature, change, change the salinity of the water, uh, maybe you injure it, uh, all these stress uh, signals then make it actually age backwards. It's kind of like if you took a butterfly and made it into a caterpillar again. Uh, and then, yeah, then it can uh, grow up again. And if you stress it once more, it can actually de-age once more uh, and go around in this cycle. Uh, at least as far as we know, pretty much forever. I love how you compared and contrasted different animals and how they live their lives versus how humans live their lives. For instance, how is the life cycle of salmon unique from ours? Yes, so um, obviously it's, it's unique in, in a lot of ways, but it, when it comes to aging, it, it's unique in that salmon don't really age throughout a lot of their lifespan. And then they do go through the entire aging process uh, after, they, um, after they lay their eggs uh, or fertilize eggs. So after the breeding season, all salmon basically die, all the adult salmon basically die. Uh, and that's because they go from a young state to a very old state, basically within a week. So it's like watching a plant withering before your eyes. It basically just... Uh, they basically just start falling apart while still alive. The Greenland shark is the longest living vertebrate ever recorded at nearly 400 years old. And generally speaking, large animals tend to live longer than smaller ones. Why is this? Correct. It's probably something um, that has uh, developed throughout the course of evolution. Uh, because it makes more sense to invest in the future if you have a less, like a lower chance of dying from uh, accidents, predators, disease, or so on. So if you are a big elephant, right, there's not a lot of animals that's going to be able to hurt you. So it makes sense for evolution to, you know, it makes sense for you to keep, um, to keep up your upkeep of your body, to keep repairing everything, to keep making sure everything works well. If you're a tiny mouse, 
even if you repair yourself perfectly, you're probably going to get eaten pretty soon. So then it makes more sense maybe to uh, to just focus on breeding, to get a lot of pups. Uh, and then, you know, if you don't have perfect upkeep, that doesn't matter because you're going to die pretty soon anyways. Speaking of tiny rodents, why is the naked mole rat perhaps the most curious creature when studying life extension? Well, um, because usually, as you said, when you compare the, the compare the lifespan of animals, two equally sized animals will at least tend to live equally long, at least also if they're related. Uh, so we have the naked mole rat, which is a relative of mice and rats, but uh, and it's actually the same size of mice. It's important to mention, but it just lives at least ten times as long. So it's an example of, you know, mice and rats are the bread and butter of science or they're like the, the, um, the laboratory animal that everyone does studies on. So we know a lot about them, like how their body works and so on. And here we have one of the relatives that they should be very similar, but that can just live forever compared to them. So it's very interesting to then study these naked mole rats to kind of see if we can find out what is it that uh, like um, is different in a naked mole rat compared to a mouse or a rat. And then maybe that could explain why it lives so long. And maybe the secret is then something we could transfer to ourselves to, to like help us live longer as well. Relative to our size, humans actually have a pretty long lifespan when compared to other species. How might opossums living off of an island off the coast of Georgia here in the United States help us explain the evolution of our own lengthy lifespan relative to our size, Nicholas? Well, so usually um, opossums don't live very long. So uh, if you catch the same animal twice within a few years or within a year, even you, you can see it ages very rapidly. And that's most likely because uh, they're not at the top of the food chain. Uh, they're dinner for a lot of other animals. So basically often they will uh, get eaten. So yeah, they have short lives, but there, are, there is a, an, um, there is a population that's a, that's a biologist, I th think from maybe the University of Alabama called Stephen Allstead, who has been studying these opossums on this island in Georgia, uh, where there's no predators and there hasn't been predators for a long time. So through the generations, these opossums have actually developed longer lifespans because they have lived in safe environments. So it makes more sense to develop mechanisms to like keep repairing the body uh, so that you can have more time to have young. When considering the length of a person's life, obviously uh, the question of genetics comes up. What does research on identical twins and married couples show about the role of genetics in lifespan? Yes. So I guess you can say that within the last, say, 20 years, when, we, when genetics has really picked up, maybe we've had like one major lesson, which is that a lot of stuff is more genetic than we thought. So like our personality, what we look like and so on and so on. But the one thing that I know that's kind of like the one thing that hasn't gone in this direction is aging, because it actually turns out that in aging, uh, we're not very similar to people who are genetically similar to us. For instance, as you mentioned, um, you often do these studies on identical twins because they basically have the same genetics. It's like uh, as close as you can get to a clone of two of the same person that just lives their life twice. 
but then if you study these people, they will turn out to be pretty similar in personality and traits and so on, but uh, not in aging, uh, not in lifespans. So they actually tend to live pretty dissimilar lifespans or have pretty uh, dissimilar lifespans. So um, that's kind of a clue that a lot of the stuff uh, around aging and how long we live is actually something that's in our own hands. It's to do with our environment. Obviously, that's not totally in our hands, but it's more in our own hands than genetics is. But we cannot totally uh, dissolve genetics from the idea of aging. What have we learned about common genetic variants and aging from an Amish community here in Indiana, uh, amongst all places? So we have learned of a genetic uh, connection basically to growth. Um, That's a, a common trait we also see in laboratory animals. But I will say that these connections to genetics are pretty minor actually compared to uh, compared to the environmental uh, stuff we learn we've also found another uh, genetic variant that has to do with your likelihood of developing alzheimer's developing heart disease and so on but even these genetic variants don't give that much of a picture they're more something you can look at to get an idea what is impacted in aging than you know kind of like a death sentence or something uh, if you have these genetic variants It's pretty remarkable to read that life expectancy would only increase by a little bit more than three years if all cancers disappeared, four years if all cardiovascular diseases disappeared, two years for Alzheimer's disease. How is this determined and why is this the case? You you would assume that the major killers of humans, any one of these things being dashed, that it would increase our lifespan by, I don't know, at least five to 10 years. Yes. So so the problem is that of course, of course, all these all these diseases are caused by uh, specific things that are not the same. So that's one reason you get one kind of cancer. Say you get pancreatic cancer. Another uh, reason you get colon cancer. Another reason you get Alzheimer's and so on. But there is like a common thing that causes them all basically, and that's aging. So someone like me who is 26 years old, I am very 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 unlikely to like say get a heart attack, get dementia, and I'm also protected against most kinds of cancer. And that's basically because these diseases are not something that happens to a young and fit body, there's something that happens to an old body. So that also means that if we could cure one of them, then you're still left with the the main problem, which is having an old and weak body. uh, And that body is then susceptible to developing another age-related disease. So uh, if we cure one thing, you're probably just gonna get something else later down the road that's then gonna kill you. So if we really want to extend human lifespan like a lot, then there's only one option, and that is to fight the aging process itself. And to do so cellularly, which we will get to here shortly. Uh, but first, though, what is the theory of antagonistic pleiotropy as a potential explanation for how potentially fatal genetic mutations can actually be beneficial in the earlier stages of life? Uh, these these uh, theories are theories on uh, why aging has evolved in the first place like why didn't we why don't animals just not live forever Uh, and it could be uh, antagonistic pleiotropy is a theory that says that a gene can be like beneficial in the early stages of life and then detrimental later on for instance if there's a gene that might help you uh, get more pops early in life but then later on it can have some kind of detrimental effect maybe say making you blind or something then there might be 
um, then it might make sense for an animal that's going to die anyway from predation or disease to then just invest or to have this gene that promotes success, evolutionarily speaking, in the early stages of life at the cost of then aging later on, because most animals in that species will not make it to this point anyways. So uh, yeah, that's basically the theory. It's a little bit surprised to learn about this as well, but it's a pretty negligible difference between the queen bee and worker bees when each of those bees is born. So what is it that allows the queen bee to become the leader of a hive? Uh, it's an epigenetic program, something called an epigenetic program. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's really interesting because she lives a lot longer and she's basically identical genetically to the workers. So we don't really know how this all works, but we know it's the same in ants, for instance. Uh, so that's also another, that's one of the examples often used by people who are into the, the, the theory of programmed aging, basically saying that, well, here are animals that should live in a similar amount of time, but they really don't. Uh, so what is it? How, why is these worker bees not living up to like this genetic potential, you can say that they have? So I should have mentioned this a little bit earlier, but this book is broken up into three different parts. Part two is scientists' discoveries. How do exactly. the trees in Biosphere 2 help explain why antioxidant supplements are actually bad for our health? Well, that story is a longer story, but basically what we can learn from studying a lot of animals is that stress is not always bad. So... Uh, once there was this theory that basically if we wanted to live a long time, we should just remove as many stressors as we possibly could. And then that would help us, you know, extend lifespan because we wouldn't take so much damage. So we wanted to remove all this damage that might, uh, that might harm us. But it just turns out for, for most biological uh, organisms that there's certain stressors that if you remove them, then the animal doesn't become healthier or live longer or anything, they actually become weaker. So a, a pretty good example is exercise in humans, right? When you exercise, you actually uh, harm yourself quite a lot. Uh, muscles, bones, and so on take damage, uh, get high blood pressure, your pulse get high and so on. So there's a lot of strain put on your body. But if you remove this, you actually, like you don't, get stronger from not having the damage, you actually get weaker because the organism is evolved to thrive on this stressor to, uh, um, to need it basically to get stronger. And this process that you're referencing of getting stronger from adversity is called hormesis. And why is exactly. arsenic an interesting toxin to study on the subject of hormesis? Well, it is not an interesting thing to study in that I recommend anyone try to take it, but it's an interesting <laughs> thing to, to study because it's, um, it's just a proof of, of this concept, basically. So uh, you can have worms that, uh, that get exposed to low concentrations of this toxic uh, chemical, and then you would maybe guess that that will kill them. And it does in high doses, but in low doses, it's it actually doesn't kill them. It's actually slightly beneficial. So again, it's, it's the exact same principle of uh, kind of getting stronger from adversity. And how are the plants that we eat also an example of hormesis in action? Um, that is actually based on the fact that plants don't want to be eaten. So uh, like all other biological, uh, biological organisms, they want to 
live, survive, uh, but that's just, you know, they can't fight the same way we can. If there's a lion that's trying to, to eat you, maybe you can run away or try to fight back. Uh, a plant is just sitting there, so it has no defense really uh, physically, but it does have a chemical defense often. So a lot of plants are actually toxic to the animals that try to eat them. Uh, and some of these toxins, you know, can even be deadly to humans. For instance, wild almonds have uh, cyanide, the stuff that the Nazi uh, Nazis used to kill themselves. Uh, so like a very, very toxic compound. But some of these things are not toxic in the to the extent that it, it kills us. It's just toxic to the extent that, you know, it can actually promote these same protective mechanisms as, say, exercising or doing other kinds of uh, these adverse things that are actually beneficial. So people living in high altitudes are exposed to higher radiation levels and also lower oxygen levels, which creates something called heat shock proteins. Now, this is something that I'd heard about as a benefit of saunas, which you also touch on in this book. So what are heat shock proteins and how does their production benefit us? Um, so heat shock proteins, of course, as a technical explanation, but if you just wanted to, uh, to make it simple, uh, I think I write in the book that they're kind of a superhero of uh, proteins, so they help other proteins. Uh, uh, if you take uh, any kind of damage uh, to your cells, uh, which you do just by being alive, your proteins can uh, get out of shape and then they can be helped by these heat shock proteins to get back to their correct shape, which is the way they function. Uh, so we actually don't know precisely if heat shock proteins is what causes the benefit of going to the sauna there could be other uh, other mechanisms as well uh, so uh, for people like of course if you want to know the mechanisms uh, that's important like scientifically but if you just want to get the benefits could be from heat shock proteins could be some other avenue really what's another theory as to why the sauna is so good for you then it could be something with the blood pressure. There could also be other uh, molecular mechanisms that drive this, that it's not exactly heat shock proteins, but it's other, you know, mechanisms that deal with stress. So uh, we have uh, these heat shock proteins are named for heat, but they're actually a more general like stress response. You can also, you also express them after different kinds of other stresses. Uh, but there's also other parts of the cell that could be, be used to explain it. Mechanistically speaking, do we have a better idea of how cold exposure works as another hormesis device? Uh, we actually have a worse explanation. So we have by far the best proof that sauna works. So then, of course, like some people will start speculating if sauna works, does cold exposure then work? And there is some like scientific reasons why uh, like cold and cold and heat doesn't affect us in the same way. So it's not a given that it's going to work. Uh, but there's actually, there's quite a lot of new studies on cold exposure that seem to find benefits for all sorts of things like the immune system. There's also for mood, uh, a lot of people that feel uh, better, more productive and so on uh, using cold exposure. So, so it's not that there's no uh, evidence for benefits, but for aging, I'd say we're not quite there yet where we can say for sure, like you're going to live longer if you start using cold exposure. But yeah, so I would say if you had to pick one of the two, you you probably pick heat exposure, so you pick the sauna. But a lot of people, especially like here from where I'm from uh, in Denmark, in one of the Nordic countries, uh, we like to um, we like to do sessions where you do both. So you do sauna and then you do cold exposure and then the sauna and cold exposure like a couple of times. Uh, so that's another possibility. Hmm. 
So Laron syndrome is where an individual who has it, uh, they are much smaller than the average human, but proportionally show. So whereas dwarfism, uh, the individual has shorter appendages. They actually have a normal size head and torso. Uh, those suffering from Laron syndrome are just smaller all around, and they are proportionally smaller. And studying a tribe whose uh, inhabitants mostly had Laron syndrome, uh, it was learned that this group almost never gets cancer because of excessive growth hormone in the blood. Now, anybody who follows sports for a living has heard of human growth hormone before as a sort of performance enhancer. Uh, can HGH have the same intended effect for those taking it uh, for other anti-aging benefits where it can help to stave off cancers and things like that? Well, the Laurent syndrome is actually not uh, not from excessive growth hormone. It's from uh, they do have high levels of growth hormone in the blood, but they don't react to growth hormone at all. So the receptor for growth hormone is broken, meaning that you can pump up the level of growth hormone as high as you want. The body's not going to respond to it in any way, and that's why they're short. So they don't get all the benefit or all the effects that then um, that then come after uh, growth hormone. So um, basically from animals, we know that similar syndromes is beneficial for a long life. So the animals that have less growth signaling actually live longer. And that basically means that the old idea of using growth hormone to live longer among humans is probably doing yourself, uh, at least not a favor, you might actually be harming yourself because we can see that, the, that there is a correlation between growth and, uh, and longevity, but it's in the way that less growth is often beneficial for longevity. That's right. Inverse. Uh, larger people tend to live shorter lives than smaller exactly. people. Now, gro growth hormone binds to growth hormone receptors in the liver, producing another hormone called insulin-like growth factor one or IGF-1. Could blocking yes. IGF-1 production help to fight disease? And what would be the downsize uh, for a fully formed adult doing so? Well, it's um, it's too broad, so that to the like we can't just block the, it's it has too many effects for us to just block it. And there has been, um, so these Laron people and the mouse that are used to simulate like how Laron syndrome work, they have very low or, or absent levels of this IGF one because that's actually the main way the growth hormone work it works. It produces um, it makes the liver produce IGF one. Yeah. Did so, yeah. Um, so once IGF-1 binds to cell receptors, the mTOR complex is activated. mTOR stands for mechanistic target of rapamycin. And anybody yes. who follows uh, anti-aging research knows that rapamycin has become a very popular drug in this world uh, over the last yes. five plus years now. What is this in relation to our connection with fungi as another clue to why we age though? Because this is something that I was completely unfamiliar with before reading this book. Yeah, so it's actually rapamycin is actually a compound normally produced by, by a bacteria that has been found in Easter Island in the soil, soil of Easter Island that uses it as a weapon against its enemy, which is fungi. So uh, fungi, even though of course we don't look uh, much alike, we actually a very like very distant relative of ours, and they have a similar protein to our mTOR. So it's used to block that. But then the scientists that worked on this stuff, they actually found that, yeah, they could use, uh, they could use it for, 
for humans as well and get the same effect. So then it was used in high doses or it is used right now uh, in high doses for organ transplant because it can, um, it can suppress the immune system. That's obviously not what we want for aging research, but then now there's different research groups, companies and so on that are trying to see, could we use low doses for like the aging effect or for the longevity effect? And it's also, yeah, become huge uh, online. Lots of people also maybe experimenting a little bit on themselves and, and trying this out. So do you think that some form of microdosing rapamycin might, uh, might eventually show enough benefits to where we could see people taking it on a wide, uh, wide scale basis? Well, uh, I would say in the book, I call it more of a Hail Mary approach, like a, a last uh, last minute thing you do. Um, the, the problem is that we don't really we don't really have good human data yet. So I would focus on a lot of the other stuff I talk about, unless you're really in a dire situation and like you need something like you can feel you can feel your body being. Yeah being older than you want it to be or being like you you feel like age has caught up with you too much but i would say uh, also i'm of course not a doctor and giving medical advice but i would not i would not recommend it unless it's like a hail mary situation I tend to agree with you on that one uh nicholas what yeah. is autophagy that is uh, what i in the book called this um, garbage man of the cell so that's basically uh, a system, one of the systems we have in, in our cells that uh, cleans them up. So being alive means taking damage. So of course, all these molecules we have in our cells, they continuously get damaged. If we never removed all this junk, the cellular junk, they would just completely clot up the cell and destroy it. So we have systems that will remove junk, uh, recycle it. A lot of the times we will reuse the building blocks and this is, of course, hugely important to aging because we can see with time that this process gets worse and worse. So we tend to accumulate cellular junk in, in all cells. Something called spermidine is a potential autophagy enhancer. What is it and what are some of the foods that may help with its production? Yes. So we, of course, uh, it's pretty evident where this molecule was found in the first place, but uh, it's not the only source. So we know tons of this. Uh, different kinds of uh, mushrooms, there's different kinds of beans, soybeans, uh, suki beans, uh, wheat germ has a lot of this compound. And basically it's been found to activate the autophagy uh, system in mice. So, and help them live longer as well. Uh, there's human studies ongoing, so we don't know about the effects in humans yet, uh, but yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty harmless to eat these kind of things. Like you can't get a spermidine pure spermidine supplements. So you will have to get this stuff from eating some of the foods. And some of the foods I mentioned here are, are pretty healthy in themselves anyway. So that's also a pretty harmless thing you can do if you want to, if you want to try some of, of this stuff out. And what are telomeres and how are they a cornerstone of our cells lifespan? So telomeres uh, was the hottest topic in aging research, maybe uh, a decade ago, maybe a little more. Uh, I call them the uh, the eggless or the shoelace cap caps uh, on the tip of our chromosomes. And basically um, the fact that makes them so exciting is that they start out pretty long and then as cells uh, divide, they tend to shorten. 
so we get shorter and shorter of these caps that are protecting the, t uh, the chromosomes. Uh, and then we know once you have run out uh, of telomere or at least gotten to a, a low level, then uh, cells tend to become what's called senescent. So they tend to, uh, to stop functioning. Uh, it's kind of like the cellular version of growing old. Uh, and then there was ideas about what if we could uh, continuously elongate these telomeres, could that then keep us young? And we know, yes, in, hum in human cells, it can. If, if you can elongate the telomeres, it can keep the cells basically immortal, keep them alive forever. The problem is that if you do that in a whole organism, it tends to cause cancer. So uh, it's not uh, the elixir for eternal life yet, but uh, it's at least uh, an interesting, like, like it's an interesting topic in aging that is also being researched by some companies. So is there a way to naturally and safely lengthen telomeres right now or no? No, there's none. There's uh, a little group of people that have tried to do it uh, by experimenting on the, themselves, but this is some uh, stuff that you're going to need to be a scientist or have uh, help from a scientist to even try on yourself because there's, there's people have looked and looked and looked for this stuff, but, but there's nothing really that we know of that could have this effect. Nicholas, what is the epigenetic clock and how does it provide an adequate measurement of a person's health span and lifespan? Yeah, so the telomeres uh, has also been proposed as what's called a biological clock, where you could basically say, well, if they shorten throughout life, can it tell us about like the rate of aging? Like how fast are you aging? If your telomeres are shortening faster, maybe you're aging faster. If they're shortening a little more slowly, maybe you are like keeping aging at bay. The problem is that it's not very accurate. Uh, so there's variations that are too much for it to be really useful for this purpose. But there is a new uh, option for doing something similar, which is called the epigenetic clock, uh, which measures uh, the, the level of something called methylations in different parts of the genomes. And it's a, it's a little te technical, but what you can just think about like is a biological clock. It works very well. It, it tracks aging pretty closely. Uh, so then it enables us to to study the aging process a little more. It's like say, are there certain parts of our body that ages faster than others? Are there, uh, you can also imagine in the future, maybe when we've improved it a little bit to use it in studies where you say, uh, instead of waiting until people die, when you give them a new supplement, maybe you just use this clock to say, okay, the biological clock started ticking more slowly. So that might mean that this thing is working. And what are the Yamanka factors in terms of the closest thing humans might currently have to those jellyfish that age backwards? So it's called the Yamanaka factors, and they are named after Shinji Yamanaka, who won the Nobel Prize in 2012, I believe. Uh, they are basically uh, what's, what keeps a cell in a state that's called pluripotency, where it's, um, it's a stem cell that can become any other cell type uh, in the body. And we know that actually you can take a cell from one of, of us, for instance, and then basically turn back this biological clock to zero by expressing the Yamanaka factors in the cell. So by activating these factors in the cell, you can uh, take an old person's cell and basically make them young again. So that has made a lot of people excited. Uh, there's a ton of, uh, of new companies getting started on this idea where they hope to take this idea and bring it from cells to whole humans. And then we've you know, solved the aging problem, then we could live forever and so on. Uh, it's mostly over with you guys in the States. There's a lot of it in Silicon Valley and so on. The problem is the same one as the telomere thing where, yeah, it might actually, it, maybe this is actually something that could make a human cells live forever, 
but the problem is then it's going to cause cancer most likely uh, and uh, this kind of cancer that it causes is a kind called tera, uh, ter a teratoma which is uh, one of the most uh, frightening looking cancers you will ever see uh, a cancer that basically consists of all sorts of weird tissue so it can be like a tooth in there there can be strands of hair Wow. Uh, like something that resemble an eye a little bit, because uh, if you basically turn back this biological clock too much, you might go all the way back to like early, the earliest, earliest stages, and then something like a new developmental program starts. And yeah, that's so it's like a high risk, high reward thing, right? They're hoping that they will be able to use this to like just turn back the biological clock a little bit. But of course, the problem is that if some of the cells go back too far, then yeah absolute horror uh, horror story stuff happens so are you talking about stem cell injections then that uh, are causing these things uh, no i'm talking about i'm talking about um, about turning back the clock on your own cells okay uh, so yeah you basically so basically what you can imagine is that uh, you start out um, consisting basically of stem cells like cells that can become other cells and then as you develop into a, an actual humans the cells tend to commit into certain fates. It's kind of like climbing up a tree. So then you, you pick one branch and then maybe you can only become like cells of the gut, cells of the pancreas and the liver, for instance. Then you pick a further one. Okay, now you can only become uh, one, of, uh, one of the kinds of cells that are in the pancreas and then you commit further, right? Uh, so basically when you use these factors, the idea is that then you climb back the tree again and go more towards this earlier stage where you have cells that can become any type of cell. So is that a concern with stem cell therapies also? Because that's something that's obviously grown in popularity over the last 10 to 20 years. And we're now even seeing uh, here in the States, cord blood stem cell tissue transplants happening too. Well, I am actually not an expert on that and I wouldn't know. I would okay. say I would say as long as it's cleared by the FDA, of course, it's not, uh, it's not a problem. Uh, you, you can have, you can have problems with the, like some stem cells uh, and, you know, there is, there is a theoretical risk of cancer. There, there will be a, especially if the cells are, are too far down of this, this hypothetical tree uh, I'm talking about. Um, but obviously this tree is, uh, is a big thing. So you can, uh, you can imagine that you can turn back the clock a little bit instead of too long. And then you just get cells that, uh, that are still stem cells, but they are committed to a certain faith. Uh, and then it should be less risky at least. Hmm. So as you alluded to a few answers ago, Peter Thiel, who is one of those Silicon Valley billionaires is rumored to have at one point uh, been harvesting the blood of healthy young people to try and enhance his own health and lifespan. But what does Danish research show about how, ironically, it might actually be the donor who is truly benefiting from a situation like this? And why does this have such benefits? I actually don't know if Peter Thiel is involved. Could be. Uh, there was this company over with you guys. Uh, I think it was in Silicon Valley, actually, again, called Ambrosia. That, uh, yeah, so there's these studies where you take an old mouse and a young mouse, and then you basically, uh, it doesn't sound very pleasant, but you sue them together, and then they start sharing blood. 
And what you can see is that it has like a rejuvenating effect on the old mice to get this young blood. And it also ages the young mice to get the old blood. So then people scramble to find out, well, does that mean you're going to live forever if you get young blood? So they started paying like people my age maybe to donate blood so that you could sell it at a huge premium to like billionaires and millionaires and so on. The problem is that it seems like further research at least suggests that that the benefits is not actually the, in the young blood, it's just about getting rid of old blood. There might be some factors in old blood that are at least promoting aging, because if you just take an, an old mouse and instead of giving it young blood, you just remove some of the old blood and then just give it a saline solution to replenish the fluid then actually it has the same effect as the young blood. So it's most likely that there's something in old blood maybe that it would be beneficial to get rid of. And then for once we have human equivalents of these uh, studies in the in um, blood donors. And in Denmark, we have uh, quite like substantial information gathering and large databases on the population. So we can actually see how like blood donors fare compared to people that don't donate blood. And it actually seems like they live slightly longer than people that donate that don't donate blood. Even if you account for the fact that they might be healthier to begin with. So even if you just look at blood, blood donors, then the ones that uh, donate more actually also tends to have a, a slight like lifespan uh, benefit. Microbiome entered our uh, pop culture health vernacular over the last decade or so. Of course, the gut microbiome, uh, there's oral microbiome, there's microbiome on your skin, there's microbiome in your brain, as you point out in this book. What does our microbiome have to do with aging, though, Nicholas? Well, uh, the microbiome affects basically anything in our bodies, we have found out. So we thought back in the days that humans were sterile in the, in the sense that we didn't host like bacteria, viruses or whatever, uh, unless we got sick. And then once we cleared this bacteria again, then we were back to being sterile. Now we know that we're absolutely teeming with, like we're kind of like a, a tree in the rainforest where there's all these other species that live like on us and in us and so on. And uh, in this case, it's a lot of bacteria, it's uh, viruses, it's fungi and so on. Some of these turn out to, or at least a majority seem to be pretty neutral. They don't affect us all that much. They just like, they use us for living quarters. They might eat some of the food that we eat if they're situated in the gut, but they don't do much. Then there's some that are beneficial. They might help us in some way. They might um, interact with the immune system in a beneficial way. Or there's even a study that seems to suggest that some in, in muscles that can help runners be more, like have more endurance. But then we also have some that seem to be detrimental that seem to harm us in, in different ways, uh, which we, of course, would like to then, you know, get rid of uh, in some way. I think you said that 20% of all cancer cases in humans are caused by microbes. That is a shocking yes. figure. Yes. Uh, and the majority of those are actually caused by HPV, which we luckily have a vaccine against. Now there's been at least, I don't know how it's been with you guys, but in Denmark, there's been a lot of... There was a documentary where some uh, people suggested that it was causing all kinds of, uh, of bad things in young girls and so on. So there's a lot of people that didn't take it and it took like years to clear this out and do proper studies. And now we know that it's safe, that it's like the, like the benefits far outweigh any risks that there could be. And it doesn't even seem like there is a risk. So yeah, the majority is, is that, but that's totally like, as long as if you're young, if you're old, you, you can't really get the benefits. But if you're young and you get this vaccine, then you basically 
cut that risk out of your life and you will never get a HPV caused cancer. I think the uptake is pretty high here as well. Now, as far as the gut microbiome goes, do fecal transplants show promises in anti-aging treatment? They show promises in fish. So there's this little fish called a killifish uh, that um, where you can see that if you take it in the middle of its life, uh, if you clear out the microbiome with antibiotics, uh, then it will live longer. Then if you take uh, the microbiome from a young fish and then transplant it, then it will live even longer than that. So it's beneficial to get rid of the microbiome to, to begin with the old microbiome. And then there's a further benefit if the old microbiome is replaced by a young microbiome. So of course we could, like the, the microbiome of killifish and humans are actually somewhat similar. So it could be that there would be the same thing in humans, but we, we, haven't, really, uh, we haven't really got proper data there yet, at least not to, to my knowledge. So part three is good advice. Caloric restriction yes. has long been studied as a way to increase lifespan. If it works, why does it work? And is there a line where limiting consumption becomes a net negative? Uh, there's definitely people who sh shouldn't use calorie restriction. Like if you're elderly, if you're a kid that's still growing, uh, pregnant women, people who have some kind of disease, uh, definitely not stress the body uh, like that so we know as you say calorie restriction where basically you give animals all the vitamins minerals and so on they need you just feed them too few calories that tend to extend the lifespan of, of several species um but we there's different like schools of thought what the mechanism could be for one is one is the stress factor factor right it's like a hormetic thing could be at least like heat exposure, like exercise, all these other stressful things that seem to be beneficial. There's also a theory that says it, uh, it lowers the metabolic rate and that, it, that could actually benef be uh, beneficial. So we don't really know yet. There's, uh, there's still a lot of studies ongoing on calorie restriction actually, so yeah. Well, and it's also relative to the individual too, especially here in the US where uh, obesity is such an issue, caloric restriction doesn't necessarily mean cutting down to a thousand calories a day. If the person is consuming 3,000, 3,500, 4,000 calories a day, they could gain great benefits from restricting down to whatever their normal caloric intake should be considering the rest of their size. Definitely. So, so what I have, one of my take home from all these, all these studies in calorie restriction is it might be, I mean, it's not the most pleasant thing to do if you're normal weight and then you cut down and you become like extremely skinny. And maybe even if that would extend your life, maybe that's not something you would actually want. Like it's, it's, it's not really worth living longer if your life is going to suck. But at least the take home message is that like, don't overeat, like don't, uh, don't eat too much. Don't, uh, don't carry excess weight. Uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's not only with you guys, it's, the whole world at this point is just getting uh, heavier and heavier by the day. Uh, each, each year is the heaviest we've ever been. It's uh, spreading to every single continent around the world. Uh, so definitely a problem uh, that we need to solve. Do you see that starting to become a problem in Denmark too? Because uh, most of what I hear about Nordic countries is that uh, y'all take pretty good care of yourselves over there. Well, we do have the benefits, for instance, of uh, where I live in Copenhagen, of cycling, uh, cycling everywhere to get more exercise that way. Um, 
but basically like Denmark is is one of the thinnest countries in the EU but we have actually also reached a point now where there's more overweight people than normal weight people like oh wow BMI. so not obese but still she's still carrying excess weight and that's that's the thinnest country in the EU and then I've been looking at some of this, some of these, uh, like how it's spread. Because once you might have thought like this is for the like richest part of the world, that's where you have obesity. But now it's actually more. It's like all of Asia is starting to have these struggles. Latin America, even places in Africa like South Africa, is uh, is catching up with you guys, and reaching reaching U.S. levels uh, within a few years, most likely. So it's. Uh, it turns out it was never actually like a U.S. thing or like a wealthy country thing. It was just it's just taking longer to like spread out throughout the world. Is that just because there is now an overabundance of hyper processed foods that are not only super palatable, but also uh, full of salt, sugar and fats? And that just exists all over the place now? Yes. So it, it turns out that, uh, you know, you can take a Western cuisine, and then you can make like burgers and milkshakes and fries and so on. But for instance, uh, you can take Indian food as well and make it extremely unhealthy by putting in lots of also sugar, butter, uh, salt, as you say. And it just turns out that, you know, it was never an inherent thing to just our cuisines. It's just, you can take any cuisine basically around the world and make it super unhealthy uh, and yeah, earn a lot of money from it because people get hooked on this stuff. And then, yeah. It's a bad, it's a bad situation, and uh, I think we haven't seen we haven't seen the top yet. Uh, but there, there are some new, there are some new drugs. One of them is actually from uh, from Novo Nordisk, from Denmark here, uh, semaglutide, which is actually seems to help obesity. So th- there is like some hope in the horizon, but uh, it's definitely a growing growing problem. Does that drug just help regulate insulin or something? Is that the promise that it shows? No, it actually it works on the brain primarily. So it, it helps to uh, it helps to um, create appetite. Yeah. So so people just tend to be like the the cravings are easier to control and they have a a lower like need to eat all these uh, unhealthy foods. But then the data also shows that the minute you stop taking the drug, you know everything goes back to normal and they tend to gain weight again. So if for some reason you can't handle the drug or if you don't want to be on this drug for the rest of your life then uh yeah it just doesn't seem like it works that works that way well nutrition is a passion of mine nicholas and deciphering which nutritional science to believe is a bit of a fool's errand having said that uh as i've been somebody who's gained better control over my health i've learned lessons on certain things i think generally speaking you're better off eating whole foods fruits, vegetables, uh, the right sorts of carbs, and then uh, the right amounts of meat as well that are hopefully sourced from proper places. But even as somebody who eats healthy, I've come to learn that there are quote unquote healthy foods that aren't all that good for me. As a matter of fact, uh, personal admission here, but I don't know if you can see this on my arm. I actually just got a continual glucose monitor that I put on earlier this morning, and I'm excited to uh, track some of the things that I assume are healthy for me, but maybe they're causing uh, these big blood sugar spikes. So that all speaks to this subject of insulin. So for those who are unfamiliar, what exactly is insulin and how important is it with the aging process? 
So insulin is a is a hormone that uh, you can think of it working kind of like a key. So if, if you eat carbohydrates, any kind of carbohydrates, whether it's uh, pure straight up sugar you're eating, or if it's uh, whole wheat bread or whatever, potatoes, it, it gets broken down mainly to glucose and taken up in your body. Then uh, it's supposed to go, of course, out to all your cells where it works as fuel. Uh, so it goes around in the blood. But then it actually can't just like jump into the cell. It needs to be led into the cell. And that's where your pancreas produces this hormone called insulin that works kind of like a key that can open uh, this little gate that can allow glucose to go into the cells. And then, uh, for instance, if you're doing something, then this glucose will be burned and to power the cells. It will also at rest, of course, but more if, if, you are, if you're exercising or so on. Then the problem is that, uh, for instance, if you get uh, type 2 di uh, diabetes, uh, you can kind of overload this whole system so that the insulin um, kind of stops working a little bit, or at least you'll need more and more insulin to actually get the sugar into your cells. And that's a problem because uh, high levels of blood sugar is damaging to blood vessels. So if you have high levels of blood sugar in a long time period, you can, I mean, some diabetic people even go blind, they lose uh, their toes, you have to get like, um, can't remember the English word, but where you can like lose some of your leg, you have to have to cut off the leg. Amputated, yeah. Exactly, amputated, yeah. So there's this uh, very, it's not, uh, it's not very pleasant. So of course, this is a, a, a thing that is important for a healthy body to keep this in check so that you're, you can let the, the sugar into your, your cells. And a drug that has been extremely beneficial for those who suffer from bi uh, diabetes is metformin. Anybody who has heard about rapamycin in the health and wellness space over the last five years has also heard uh, about those who are in touch with their own personal health considering taking something like metformin. So what does metformin do? And is it something that is worth somebody who is otherwise pretty healthy considering taking as an anti-aging tool? Yeah, so metformin is... Uh... Um, increases insulin sensitivity, so it, it helps relieve these symptoms that you have in diabetes, and it's it's uh, it's a useful drug for diabetes. It's been used for years, and and there's no question about that. The problem is uh, this whole camp of using it, um, using it to fight the aging process. Uh, I am very skeptical about. So first of all, there's been a ton of studies that show that metformin um, blunts the effects of exercise so basically you'll get less out of your workouts uh, you will have a, a lower increase in like your vo2 max or your muscle size or strength or so on if you take metformin compared to not taking it uh, then there's also been some more uh, even more serious studies uh, actually one that came out after the, the book came out where it seems like dads uh, fathers that take um, that take metformin have a higher likelihood of getting uh, kids that have uh, some kind of developmental uh, problems uh, mm -hmm. so still not a very high chance like if you're a diabetic it's still like risk-wise it's still the thing to do but if you're otherwise healthy and you take a drug that so like introduces this risk into your life all of a sudden and also blunts the effects of exercise which we know for sure is beneficial if you want to fight aging then it's just not worth it it's uh, the risk reward ratio is just really bad yeah you know i heard about the how it negates the benefits of exercise pretty early on when hearing about this drug and as soon as i heard that it's like well why if you're otherwise healthy and you do exercise and you keep track 
uh, of what you're consuming, you're pretty good about that. Why in the world would you want to take something because it might add, add an extra year or two to your life if it is taking away from something that may have more benefit in terms of adding to lifespan than anything else with exercise? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I, what I mean as well. If, if you buy, you could very likely or more, most likely you're going to decrease your life expectancy by taking it. So there are, I have to say, studies now where they're going to actually test this out in humans to get like the fine lines. So for, for real, like healthy people taking metformin, let's see if they actually, you know, benefited from it. So it's not just talking about from data from like animal studies and like diabetics and so on. So we will get some better stu studies on it. But yeah, I am not, I don't think it's going to work. Let's just say it like that. Not to spoil the ending, Nicholas, but you just talked about this. Uh, you suggest to anybody who wants to increase their lifespan to take up exercising. So why is exercise so beneficial? And in your mind, is there a best form of exercise? Because ultimately for me, if you're doing something, it's better than nothing. But I do think that there are certain activities that are more beneficial than others. Yes. So we know also from animal studies uh, that exercise, of course, is hugely beneficial. It's one of the big problems we have in the modern world that, uh, you know, it's, it's very convenient. So you don't really get to move your body a lot. And uh, it's kind of a use it or lose it situation in humans as well, where if you don't, uh, if you don't put the stress on your body, you're going to get weak from it. So uh, that's basically um, what we can see also if we study people and we can see the people that exercise the most tend to have the longest life expectancy. And it goes basically all the way down to the lowest life expectancy, those that don't exercise at all. But of course, you have a limited amount of time and you can do the perfect thing. Maybe we can see that the best kind of exercise if you want to live a long life is uh, cardiovascular is something that challenges the cardiovascular system like aerobic training so stuff like running biking swimming maybe playing some kind of uh, sport uh, basketball or whatever where you get your pulse up it's basically about getting the pulse up because one of the most important things uh, yeah to survive is to have a, a healthy heart and cardiovascular system and you get this from getting your pulse up then if you have yeah, go ahead. Uh, that's interesting because I was going to say that I would probably rate uh, resistance training a little bit above steady state cardiovascular training. Yes, but then, then comes the next that if you then have extra time, resistance training uh, is really beneficial to add on. Uh, also, not only for like the traditional groups that do it, uh, like young men uh, also, there's of course a lot of uh, women, but we can see that is, for instance, um, old, older women, uh, have a lot of uh, problems with uh, the bone density with age and uh, resistance training is one of the best ways to like uh, at least fight this decline you have in bone mass uh, with, with age because when you load up your muscles it's actually not only the muscles that are strained it's actually the bones as well and it's the same effect uh, as we've talked about a few times now if you challenge the bones then they'll grow stronger all right, he is Nicholas Brinborg, a molecular biologist and the author of Jellyfish Age Backwards. Nicholas, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you too, Gentleman Jesus, for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at gentlemanjesus.com. And thanks to Joshua Bates for the video editing. If you have any video editing needs, hit him up on Instagram at Forager Digital. 
And thanks as always to you for checking us out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.